That's my cue. Well, good, good morning, slash, good morning. Yes, a few minutes left till morning. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Well here at STSA. We're so happy that you're joining us here today. If you're just joining us here for the first time, we are having a five-week series. We're in the middle of a five-week series, I should say, all about failure. And you say to yourself, why in the world did I show up at a church that's talking about failure? Don't we come to church to talk about success, how to be successful? Well, here at The Well, we have been talking about failure because I'll tell you my honest opinion in life. That as much as we want to talk about our own successes, we like to hear about other people's failures. Because all of us, if we're honest... I could bring up here what we've been doing for the past few weeks, or we'll continue throughout this series, is we're looking at great people who have had big failures. People who have done great things in the Bible, and we've seen how they fell to, high, to lows that you might not have even imagined. And I could bring up here all the great successes of the Bible, and I tell you uh, how to be like Moses, how to be like Abraham, how to be like all these great guys. But most of us, if we're honest, we can relate a lot more to those greats in their failure than in their success. So what we're doing right here is we're talking about failure. And we got no problem admitting that all of us are failures. And for the past two weeks, okay, I started off the message by telling a, a story of one of my personal failures, okay, about how I messed up royally when I was giving sermons in the past, once giving a sermon about a wrong word, okay, speaking an entire sermon about a word, but didn't realize it was the wrong word. It's translated another language. At one time, apparently, cursing in a, another sermon, unbeknownst to me, the entire sermon about a curse word. So several people have told me how much they enjoy hearing about my sermon fails. I don't really know how to interpret that. <laughs> and someone said, we should keep, you should keep on starting every week one of your sermon fails. Well, I said to that person, you know, they're few and far between. <laughs> So what I'm going to do today is talk about another preacher's fail. We're going to laugh at somebody else today. True story of an uh, Anglican uh, preacher, an Anglican priest. Um, oh, I'm sorry, bishop, an Anglican bishop. So in the Anglican church, very similar to one of, some of the things that we do in, in, in the Orthodox church because they're liturgical, they begin every service by the bishop or the priest or whoever's officiating saying, the Lord be with you all. Okay, that, we have that in, in our service as well. And that's how they start. That's like their very beginning. They start by saying, the Lord be with you all. And traditionally, the response to that was, as we respond in the Orthodox Church, and with your spirit. Okay, but the Anglican Church, I guess, modernized it at some point in time. And instead of, and with your spirit, they changed it to, and also with you. Okay, and that's, I think that's similar to like the Catholic Church. So the service starts, the Lord be with you all. And then you say, and also with you. So one day... There was a bishop in town who was visiting this church, and, you know, he was getting ready to start the service, and he gets the microphone, okay, and he had one of these clip ones, not like this one, and he get the clip mic, and he can't get it to work, so he's kind of like fiddling around with it and, 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 and messing around with it, but he can't get it to work, and he kind of taps it to see if it's working, and he finally, unbeknownst to him, it goes on, okay, but he didn't realize it went on, so he's messing around with it, and he says to one of the people, something's wrong with this mic, and all the crowd responded without hesitation, and also with you. We are doing a series on failure today, or continuing a series on failure, and this is kind of our theme that we've been talking about for the past two weeks. We'll continue to carry it out, is that God wants to work through your mistakes and shortcomings, not in spite of them. 
can't stress this enough, that we've all been in the point where we have failed, we have messed up, we have felt like we have gone too far for God to use us or to bless us or to bless our marriage or to even give us a marriage. Like we feel like we've messed up so much that God can no more use us. Well, I'm here to tell you that failure does not stop God's plan for you. In fact, oftentimes it's part of God's plan for you. You say, hey, wait a minute. Failure is part of God's plan for us. Well, let me show you how God, number one, A, isn't surprised at your failure and in fact actually plans for your failure. Psalm 103, one of my favorite passages from the scripture. If you struggle with this failure thing, memorize Psalm 103, verse 11 to 14. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Now you say, hey, wait a minute. Why God is so merciful? Why God is so loving? Why God is so forgiving? Last verse, verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And you know why he knows that we are dust? Because he made us. And when he put us together, he knew that we were not going to be perfect. And like I said last week and the week before, the only one who thinks that you can be perfect is you. Isn't anyone else in the entire universe that thinks that you can be perfect except you? You ask God, God, you think I can be perfect? And God, just like we do with our little children, says, it's okay. Go, go give it your best shot. Just like when we, like a little kid, and we draw something, we say, here, Dad, like we drew something great. We're just like, okay, that's nice. Very good. Go, go play with your sister. You know what I mean? That's the way God is. He, didn't, he knows we can't be perfect. And he doesn't expect us to be perfect. And more importantly, he isn't frustrated or disappointed when we aren't perfect. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Failure isn't the end of your story. Someone sent me a nice quote this past week. And it said that failure, in fact, is on the same road as success. Success, success is just a little further down. It's the same road. Success and failure are not separate roads. Success is just a few stops down, a few exits down on the road. Because we've been seeing about how failure is not against success, actually a part of success, which is good news for us. Because there anybody here who hasn't failed? Anybody here who hasn't messed up? Anyone here who hasn't messed up to the point where they said, you know what? Like, I'm too bad. God can't use me. We can all relate to that feeling. But what we're seeing here in this series is that we will not let our failure define us. Failure doesn't define us. What defines us is our response to failure. Best example was what we saw the first week. Remember we talked about the prodigal son, the kid who went so far and was so bad and so messed up. But we don't remember the prodigal son today for his mistake. We remember him for his response to his mistake. The defining feature when you get up to heaven of the prodigal son, even though he's not a real person, he's a parable, but if he was a real person, the defining feature of the prodigal son is not the bad that he did, not the failure that he made, but his response to the failure that he made. And we, you and I, will be the same way. When we fail, we will respond in a way that is pleasing to God. Proverbs 24, verse 16. A righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. What we're looking at in this series is when failure attacks us, it usually comes at us in a pattern. And we're talking about four different ways that failure hits us and how it hit men of God or women of God and how they responded. So last week we looked at doubt and we saw how oftentimes when failure hits us, the first thing that happens is we start to doubt. God isn't protecting me. God, you let me down. I'm angry at God. I'm upset at God. And we looked at Elijah who was up on the mountain and he was victorious because his eyes were looking at God. He came down that mountain and he saw Jezebel and he was running for his life. When his eyes were on God, strongest man in the world. 
eyes on people, circumstances. He ran from a woman after he had just taken down 850 of the prophets of Baal. We saw last week that the only difference, y'all remember this one? The only difference between a hero and a coward is what? Is where their eyes are. Elijah eyes on God, hero. Elijah eyes on people, circumstances, coward. And we saw the same thing. That's why our homework assignment last week was look up. And we said we will lift our eyes up to the mountains. That's what we talked about last week. Now this week, we're going to talk about an even bigger fail. Like Elijah's fail was a bad fail. But like I said earlier today, for those who are here during the liturgy, today's fail that we're going to talk about, if you look at the biggest fails, like the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, I'm going to go number one, Adam and Eve, and number two, the story we're going to talk about here today. And today's fail is a made-for-TV special full of sex, lies, murder, conspiracy. Like it's got everything that you'd want in a Sunday night miniseries. And we're going to see it here today in the Bible. But before we do that, before we do that, let's make this personal. Before we get into the Bible story, because again, like last week, we're going to read a pretty long passage from the Bible just to get the story. But before we get to the story, everyone here, let's put them thinking caps on and help me out with an answer to a question. Help me out by thinking to yourself, when you and I, when we fail at anything in life, not spiritually only, but think of everything except spiritually for right now. When we fail, what is the, one of the most common responses that we will have subconsciously without ever realizing that it's taking place, but it's happening all the time? And I'll give you some examples to help you try to put it, uh, make it practical. Let's say I have a son. I do have a son. Let's say my son, when we are, let's say we're, we're young, Okay, he's learning how to read, all right, or learning how to do some kind of math problem or whatever it may be. And he's trying, but he can't get it. And he tries and he can't get it. And he tries and he can't get it. And he tries and he tries and he tries and he can't get it. How is he going to respond in math class the next day? Another example, someone learning how to play the piano. Again, make it a child because it's easy to see with children because they're not as mature as we are, even though we're worse. I just, I can't get it. The teacher says, you know, uh, A and B at the same time, okay? Or they hit this and this at the same time. I'll give you, I'll give you a very personal, very practical. My kid just got an Xbox, okay? Xbox has a controller with how many buttons? 75 as far as I'm concerned. I'm used to Nintendo, two buttons, and then when I got to like high school, Sega Genesis, three buttons, that took me forever to figure out how to do A, B, and C button. This Xbox thing, this got so many buttons. It seems like it's got more buttons than fingers. And every time, we're just playing the little soccer game, and it's time to shoot. How do I shoot? I have to look down and say, B, 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 B. And by that time, I look up, and other side, the uh, thing is gone. How do we respond when we try and we fail? And we try and we fail. And we try and we fail, whether it's piano, whether it's school, whether it's playing video games with my 8-year-old kid. How, what happens when we try and we can't do it? What do we subconsciously, naturally do right after that? I'm going to say, today's attack is disinterest. But really, it's apathy. But I wanted them all to begin with D. So that's why it's disinterest. So we can memorize them. But it's apathy. Apathy how? I can't get this reading thing. So you know what? Reading is dumb. I don't want to read. Reading is dumb. I don't want to read. I can't figure out how to play this video game. The video game is dumb. The only good video games were from 1988 and previous. Anything after 1988 is dumb. Not because it's dumb, 
but because I can't do it. But it's easier for me to not admit that I can't do it, to not say I'm a failure, to just say, this is dumb, I don't want to do it. This is not interesting, this is not fun to me. And that's what happens to a lot of our kids in school. We keep telling when they can't do it, they can't do it. So they convince themselves, you know what? I don't want to do it. It's exactly like, exactly like when we, we used to play uh, basketball, okay, and I'm beating you, all right, and I'm beating you, and I'm beating you, and you just start shooting half-court shots. Well, I didn't want to win anyway. I just throw it up here. I'm not even trying. This is what we do naturally and subconsciously when we find ourselves we cannot succeed. It is, it's the whole, if you can't beat them, join them mentality. If I can't beat it, you know what? Just quit. We would never do this spiritually, would we? We would never do this spiritually. We would never, let's say, have a problem drinking. And the people, trust me on this one, trust me on this one, oh, you who quick to judge, the people who struggle with addictions, drinking, smoking, whatever it may be, they hate it more than we hate it. They hate it. And that person who's struggling with alcoholism, he cannot stop the drinking. He hates himself. But because he cannot succeed, he convinces himself that it's not that big a deal. And if I wanted, I could. But what's that big a deal? I'm not harming anyone. I'm allowed. It's legal age. What's the big deal? We convince ourselves when we have a bad habit that we can't stop it. You know what? What's the big deal? Not because we think it's not a big deal, but because we can't stop it. And if I say it's a big deal, then I just feel like a failure because that's a big deal, but I can't do anything about it. How many times, parents... We got a problem with our anger, but we blame the children. It's not that I have a problem with my anger. I can control my anger. But it's the kid. It's the kid who draws it out of me. I could control it. If I wanted, I could. But it's the kid. I'll I'll tell you in front of God, true story. I know that there's a person, not local, so don't don't, don't everyone get worried about your husband. There's a husband who is justifying adultery because of something the wife did with the laundry. I'm not joking. The laundry. Look where she put the laundry. That was what it is. Look where she put the laundry. And he knows what he's doing is wrong, and he hates himself for it, but he has to just justify that, you know what, if I wanted, I would, but I don't even care. We do this all the time, because what disinterest says is, why try? Why try? I don't want to try. If I wanted, I would. Especially, you know what, like I'm speaking to everybody here today, but maybe men, maybe us guys, it hits us a little bit more. And I'll tell you why. Because all of us men, all of us, me first and foremost, all of us are insecure. All of us want to be successful. Y'all ladies, y'all are better at accepting failure than we are. We never want to appear as failure, ever. Especially in front of the most important person in the world. You know who that person is? The guy in the mirror. We never want to look in that mirror and see a failure. So it is easier for me Instead of, because I'm insecure, that when I have a weakness and I feel like I cannot win at this, to just say, why try? How many men, they feel like they cannot pray the same way their wife wants them to pray. So why even try? I tried, but I can't. So why try? How many men feel like, you know what? No matter what I do in this marriage, I cannot please my wife. So you know what's going to happen? Ladies, I'm telling you, speaking to the ladies here, you know what's going to happen if your husband feels like he cannot please you and cannot meet your standards? He's going to stop trying. Because he doesn't want to feel like a failure every day. He doesn't want to come home and feel like he cannot meet your standards. And actually, let, let's flip it around here. Instead of just, let, let's be honest, it's the other way too. 
Husbands, some of you are have expe expectations for your wives, which are not rational, and they are induced by a lot of sinful habits and pornographic images, and we have expectations for our wives that they can never meet, and if you do not set that expectation where she can, she's going to stop trying. Nothing is worse than trying to please someone who is unpleasable. Agree with me? Nothing is worse. And I said this last week, that when we make God an unpleasable God, I told you all last week that having an abusive parent and having a perfectionist parent actually produces the same result in children. There was a study that was done that said that. A abusive parent and a perfectionist parent has the same result on children in the long term because no one wants to feel like a failure and no one wants to feel like they're not good enough. And we make God into expecting perfection. It's just a matter of time. Why pray? Why should I pray if I cannot please God no matter how much I pray? Why should I read my Bible if no matter how much I read my Bible, I still sin? Why should I go to church if no matter how many times I go to church, I still fall into this sin? Why try? Because I'll never be good enough. Well, the answer to that question comes in our character for today, who is David. Y'all are going to love this story. If you like action and drama and romance and conspiracy and murder and war, you love the story of David. And I'd encourage you to read more of it. I'm just going to kind of go through the highlights here. But you want to get more into, like, the action of the Bible is David. David, we're going to pick up his, like, y'all know David. David had, I want to say, the highest high and the lowest low. Let's start with the highest high. Who is David? David, as you see in the picture, he's the giant killer. He is the one who faced Goliath, who a whole nation was scared of him, and he took him down with just five stones and a sling. And he beat this giant down, and he stole the giant's sword, and he cut the giant's head off with his own sword. And then it says that David took his head with him, and he hung his head up in his, like we have on our mantle, you have a little picture, maybe a little candle, maybe one of them fake uh, the bear claw things. He had the head of Goliath on there. I don't know how, that's disgusting, but that's fantastic. And if I cut off a giant's head, man, I'd hang that thing up. I'd carry it with me everywhere I went. David was a giant killer. David was a guy who wrote the book of Psalms. David was a guy who Jesus himself, Jesus himself quoted many times and said, who am I? I am the son of David. And that's a big deal. Because especially in the Bible times, they were known by like who their parent is. I'm so-and-so, son of so-and-so, so-and-so, son of so-and-so. So Jesus said, who am I? I'm Jesus. I'm son of David. And for all eternity, the Messiah, lineage of David, 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 David. David has about as high a high as you can have in the scriptures. But he also had a pretty low low. Now, as we're going to get into his fail right here, just, just again to, to, to make it like relevant to us. The thought of me and David, David, the thought of me and David standing next to each other side by side, side by side as failures, that's a tough thing to swallow. Like imagine you're going in confession line, okay, and in front of you is David. Like there's no way my confession is going to look like his confession. Like his confession is going to be like, dear God, I only wrote two Psalms today instead of three. Like, I only killed one giant today. Like, there's no way that me and David can relate to each other. He's the psalmist. He's the king. He's the one who God chose and said, this is a man. I got a verse right here, don't I? Yeah, the man after my own heart. Acts 13, verse 22. 
talked about, and this is in the New Testament, they're talking about David. And it says that God raised up for him David as a king. God raised up David. He was God's choice. Also, whom he gave a testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. God said about David, stamp of approval, this guy, man after my own heart. Only person in the scripture said that about is David. How can me and David, like how can David feel like I feel? I feel like a failure, that's understandable. How can David and me be in the same boat? Well, we're going to see today. We're gonna pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, just to get a little context. David now, who started being a king, officially at about age 16, 17 years old, David is now 50. So David has now gone through a series of challenges when he was young. The former king was trying to kill him and chased him around forever. And then even his own children tried to kill him. And David was a man of war and fought all these battles and all this kind of gruesome stuff. That was at the beginning. David is now near the tail end of his kingship. And now things are peace and prosperity. And he's successful and everyone knows him. And he's the most famous man in the entire world. And everything is calm. He has peace in his relationships with people, peace with God. Life is good for David. That's where we'll pick up the story. Verse one, and it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Just quick pause in the story right there. Bad, like that's a bad way to start because I said before, David man of war, David fighting, David doing all this stuff, now David at peace. Isn't it oftentimes true that the times where nothing is going on are sometimes the most dangerous times? And it starts off by saying David was not at war. And David was just kind of chilling. And it ends up being his downfall right here. Verse two, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? You know what's interesting about that? The servant, David, just like I said, he's not at war, he's taking it easy, kicking back, life is good, guard down. Guard down, man down, as a famous person once said. He puts his guard down, and there comes failure, come try to hit him in the face right here. Devil comes at him. And he looks at this beautiful woman, and he says, someone go find out about that woman for me. And the servant comes and says what? She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What's interesting there? Usually people aren't referred to as the wife of so-and-so. This servant sees the look in David's eye. And the servant is trying to throw him a, like a, a lifeline, saying that so-and-so's daughter, the wife of not you. <laughs> David didn't get it. Verse four, then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Caption, uh-oh, uh-oh. Isn't it amazing how David spent 50 years of his life climbing the mountain, okay? And be this great man of God. And in one verse, destroyed it all. And you're going to see, if you read the rest of the story, but we're not going to read it all. He spent the rest of his life, the consequences of one verse, verse four. One verse, one verse, consequences the rest of his life. That's how it is, isn't it? 
Now, this is an uh-oh verse because spiritually he sinned, but that's not why he's worried. Why is he worried? David is the king. David now has a bad PR situation because his neighbor, who happens to be a soldier in the army, he just got his wife pregnant. And what is the punishment for adultery? Stoning, death by stoning. And David is the one who's supposed to enforce the law. He's got a bad situation, but don't worry. He comes up with a plan and his plan takes him from bad to worse. Verse six, then David sent to Joab, who's the commander of his army, sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab is out with the troops. He sends a message saying, send me one of your soldiers, Uriah. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, how the war prospered. A little small talk between David and the man who he just cheated on him with his wife, okay? And David said to Uriah, enough small talk. Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. Why did David call for Uriah and say, go to your home? You got a, you got a day off today. Why? Because he wanted to give him a break? What did he want Uriah to do? Yeah, I mean, you don't feel it proper saying it in church, but you know what he's trying to say. What any soldier would do when he's home from war with his wife. He wanted him to go out and have relations with his wife. And then all of a sudden she's pregnant. Hey, congrats, Uriah, you the man. Congrats. See if the plan works. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord. It did not go down to his house. What? He slept at the door? Why? So when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Now, of course, David doesn't care about Uriah. David just wants him to go do business with his wife so that when she's pregnant, he can blame it on her. Uriah responds. Watch Uriah. This is, this is just shameful for David. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David's just like, bravo to you, a righteous man of God. Go be with your wife. How are you feeling if you're David right now? Like David, this man is saying, I will not go to my wife because my men are at battle. And my men are fighting in a war. And how dare I go and eat? He slept in the street outside the door. David does what? Try again. Then David said to Uriah, okay, that's fine. Wait here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you depart. One more night. We'll give it another try. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate. He adds an element to his plan right here. He ate and drank before him. And he made him drunk. David is see, has an intelligent man. It didn't work while he was sober. Get him drunk. That's how you do it. And that evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Strike one, strike two. David is not going to strike out. David is in full panic mode right now that the king has a plan. And just see the depths and the low that this man of God sinks to. Shameful even to read it. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab. Joab's the commander. David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle 
and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. How do you feel about that? That's dirty. That's dirty. David did Uriah dirty. And you know the worst part of it? You know the worst part? Like, did y'all get what he said? He gave Uriah a letter. He said, give this to Joab. And Joab reads it, and it says, send Uriah to the place where the action is fiercest, put him in the front, and then while he's there, call for a retreat. That's dirty. What's the worst part of it? How did Joab get the letter? Who carried it? Uriah. Carrying his own death sentence in his hand. Now, wait a minute. Why would David give the message to Uriah to give to Joab? Why? Because that's who Uriah was. The most trustworthy guy in David's camp. He could trust him with his own death sentence in his hand. And he knew he wouldn't open it. He knew he wouldn't open it. David is acting weird. He's telling me to go down to my wife. He's getting me drunk. And he gives me a piece of paper. But that's who Uriah is. David, Uriah is battling to protect you and your kingdom. And he is sacrificing his life for you. And you're sleeping with his wife, getting her pregnant. And now you give the command for him to be killed. That's dirty. Story goes on. Joab, the commander, gets the orders. We're going to skip a little bit here. Joab gets the orders. And even Joab can't believe it. And Joab realizes that the king is doing him dirty, but Joab has no choice but to, but to obey. And he does what he says the king tells him to do. End of the story right here. End of the chapter. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David doesn't dirty again right here. When her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore his son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. If this was the only story you knew about David, what would you say about him? What would you say about David? If this was the only story, like, what would you say about this man who did this? I got some words because I was struggling with words. So here's some words that I got right here. Where did they go right here? Charlatan. I got despicable. I got reprehensible. I got heinous. And then my favorite of them all, because we're in a D kind of mood, a D word, dastardly. This is unconscionable. Like the worst person in the world who has no blood inside their body wouldn't do this. But David did this. What would you say? Is this a man fit for a, be a king? Is this a man fit to write a book in the Bible? Is this a man? Isn't, this isn't a man fit to mow my lawn. Especially my wife is home. <laughs> this isn't a man that you want anywhere around your children. This is an animal. This person cast him away. Outer darkness. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. But let me ask you a question. And this is the part that I don't have the right answer. And I'll tell you my answer, but I'm just making this stuff up. I'll give you my opinion. This isn't fact. How do you think David felt about himself during this time? I know how I feel about him. I hate his guts. He's the worst. But how do you think David felt about himself? You think David was proud of himself? You think David, like, it's easy to be cynical and say David is cold-hearted. He's a murderer. 
He's an adulterer. It's easy to look at David and see him like thumbing his nose at God, like, ha ha, I beat you. I'm the king. That's easy to see. And that could be the case. But I don't think it is. One year from this moment, David repents. But during this one year, when he lived with this sin, before he repented, I think it was the worst year of David's life. How do I know that? Because let me show you one of the things that he wrote during this time. We don't know for sure, but most likely he wrote during this time. He wrote Psalm 32. This was like, the Psalms were like David's journal that we just published in the Bible, but it's like his journal. He said, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Whose spirit has deceit? David's spirit. So he's saying, blessed is the one who doesn't live in the way I'm living. And he talks more about it here. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That's what David's year was like, groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I don't know for certain, but I have a theory that somebody who has tasted the closeness with God, tasted it, who has experienced that level of intimacy with God that David had, that when they fall away, they cannot just go on with life as normal. They can't. They can pretend to, and they can try to convince themselves, but they can't. Deep inside, I think that David felt like a failure. And David knew he let God down. But David didn't know what to do. You know why I, I, I say David felt like a failure and didn't know what to do? Again, easy to be cynical and say, no, he knew what he was doing. He, what he did is wrong. David had a problem. He had a problem with passion and lust. And let me ask you a question. When did this problem begin with David? With Bathsheba? If that's the way you read the story, you miss, you miss the entire story. David's problem with lust and with women in particular was a problem that he'd been battling his entire life. Let's go earlier. We can go five chapters or ten chap six chapters earlier. Look what it says here in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It says, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. This is the beginning when David was firmly established. And David did what to celebrate? David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also, more sons and daughters were born to David. Here's what I want to tell you. As David had a problem with women, passion, lust from the day he was a young man. But the problem, as long as he was a fugitive, run, like when he was a king versus when he was a fugitive, you may be desiring all the women in the whole wide world. But when you're a fugitive running for your life, you don't have as much opportunity. So it's easy to lust and have no opportunity to act upon it because you have no opportunity. Then all of a sudden you're king and everyone's kissing your hand and kissing your feet. And now all of a sudden, that same lust, you have many, 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 many opportunities to do something about it. That's where David found himself. David was no different. David had been struggling with this. And in fact, from the very, very beginning, when God made David a king, God had a rule. God allowed people to marry multiple times in the Old Testament. He didn't like it, but he allowed it. He kind of turned his head the other way. But he said very clearly, my king shall have only one wife. The king could not marry multiple times. And David, that's the right thing. And I agree. And David wrote so many Psalms about how great it is to follow your law. But he married multiple wives. And he picked them up some along the way. 
Now, that's what I'm trying to tell you is this problem. And again, I could be way off right here, but I don't think I am. I think David struggled with this problem for years. And he hated himself more than anybody else hated him. But he didn't know what he could do about it. He tried and he failed. And he tried and he failed. And he tried and he tried and he tried. And the more he tried, it seemed like the more and more he failed. Till finally he gets to this point where he says, you know what? Why try? Like, why try? Like, I've been battling this for years. And I haven't been successful. Why try anymore? And we saw what his not trying, what his giving up did. Went from adultery to murder. I'm sorry, from adultery to lying to not even murder, but conspiracy and then murder. And, tr and to be honest, treason against one of his own soldiers. We're going to get to the end of the story, then we'll come back and learn a lesson here. F fast forward one year. David is living this year hating himself. All right? And at the end of that one year, God says enough is enough. I love David too much to leave him like this. And God sends him a messenger whose name is Nathan. And we'll see what David does right here. Then the Lord, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. God sends Nathan the prophet and says, Hey, David, I want to tell you a story. And Nathan starts telling him a funny story. All right, about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had many sheep. The poor man had one sheep, and he loved that sheep so much. David's like, who cares? The story goes on. It ate, speaking about the poor man with the sheep, it ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Great, fantastic. This man loved his sheep so much like a daughter. Kind of weird, but okay. <laughs> Here's where the story picks up. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. I'm a rich man. I have 500 sheep. You're a poor man. You have one sheep. I have a guest come over who wants to eat a sheep. So I say, hmm, I'll take that one because I don't want to touch any of my 500. So I steal the one that you treated as your own daughter, apparently, that I steal your sheep. That's the story. David... As the king, okay, David's in charge of the people. He's the government. So David's anger was greatly aroused against that man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall, shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So Nathan tricks him. Tells him this story. Rich man, all at his disposal. Poor man. And this guy stole this one. And David says, This is the worst looking horror. This guy got and of course, y'all know what happens next. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You've heard the expression, you're the man, <laughs> but in a different way. He said, you are the man. And when Nathan said that, boom, hush over the room. And all of a sudden, David saw it in front of him. And Nathan continued, okay, we won't read it all, but Nathan continued to tell him, he said, God is angry with you because God blessed you and God gave you everything that you could have ever wanted. And he even says, if you read the passage later, he says, if you would have wanted more, God would have given you more. But you stole from this poor little man and you cheated God and you defiled my name and, and, and. And Nathan lays into him. Here's the important part. We said 
that it's not our failure that defines us, but our what to failure? Our response. What is the next word that comes out of David's mouth? So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I have this theory in life. And the theory is that the more stress and the more we are under pressure, the more our true colors come out. I stand up here on this stage and I can show you the most beautiful side of me, okay? The most beautiful side of me. I show you everything nice, everything loving, everything is good. I can show you that. But you want to know the true me? Squeeze me a little bit and see me when I'm stressed and I haven't slept and, I'm and I got pressure all around me and I'm confronted and I'm squeezed a little bit. Then you'll see what's truly inside me. And I hope what comes out is good. But you won't know until you're squeezed. David is squeezed right here. What came out? No excuses, no justification, no blaming Bathsheba who walking around naked taking a bath in the middle of the day. No blaming her. He said, I've sinned. And after he said, I have sinned, David penned another psalm. And it's the famous Psalm 51. And if you know that psalm, he says, I have sinned. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. He says, I have sinned. Against you only I have sinned and done this wickedness. He goes on, and he, again, he doesn't make excuses, doesn't justify. He says, cleanse me, Lord. Wash me, Lord. Make me new, Lord. He says about how cr the crushed bones, make them to rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It all came out of David. And what came out of David is, God, I hate myself. I hate myself and I've hated myself for an entire year and I felt miserable and this is the, actually the happiest day of my life because I need you back, God. I need you back. And when God says that David is a man after my heart, I think he is talking as much about this David as he's talking about the David who wrote all the Psalms. My theory, you can disagree with me if you want. I believe when God says, I want a heart like David's it's that. Is the heart, David felt like a failure, but David responded like a champ. That's what makes David heart man after God's heart. Not because he was perfect, but because the way he responded when he failed. And when David failed, he didn't make excuses. He didn't justify. He didn't continue the path he was walking. He said, I have sinned, Lord. You know what makes this especially clear? If you contrast David with another person who had the same problem. Can you think of anybody who was close to David who actually had the same problem with the wives and the ladies? His son Solomon. Same problem. The sins of the father passed to the son. Same problem. Monkey see, monkey do. Solomon saw daddy, ladies' man. Solomon became more of a ladies' man. But what's the difference between Solomon and David? David sinned. David and Solomon both did the same sin. They both married them when they shouldn't have married. And they both broke God's law by having multiple wives. David confronted with his sin, repented. Solomon confronted with his sin, looked the other way. Oh, you know, and uh, that's a big deal. And, uh, and Solomon confronted with his sin, Solomon, it says, like David, confronted, and he repented. Solomon, not only did he marry multiple wives, he married wives from not God's people. He built temples to his wives and their gods. And he thought they were stupid. Like, he wasn't believing in those idols. 
But he just said, you know what? Happy wife, happy life kind of a thing, okay? <laughs> Got to keep the 700 of them happy. So you know what? So he built all these temples. But he never, he never stopped believing in God or stopped worshiping God. He believed God, and he trusted in God. But he said, you know what? Man, I can't. Hey, just build him a temple. <laughs> That's why this verse, 1 Kings eleven six, talking about Solomon. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And did not, this is the part of the verse, like, explain this verse to me. And did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. This is the part that makes me say that man after God's heart is when David repented. How can you say after that horrible behavior, that heinous behavior that David did, fully follow the Lord as did his father David? How? How fully followed? Because God doesn't look at us based on our failure. God looks at us based on our response to our failure. God does not look at us based on our failure. Our failure does not have to define us. It may define us if we don't respond properly, but it doesn't have to. In God's eyes, it does not. It's our response to our failure that defines us. And that's why God said this about David. Question for you, and then I get practical. Who do you look more like, Solomon or David? Which characterizes you? All of us fall. I'm not saying, is your fall like David or your fall like Solomon? I'm not saying that. All of us have fallen. And we're going to continue to see over the coming two weeks, great, great, great people all fall. There ain't anybody who didn't fall. So don't say, my sin looks like more like Solomon. My sin looks more like David. It's not about my sin. It's about my response to my sin, which looks more like you. Is your sin, your failure, your weakness, whatever it want, whatever you want to call it, is your response to it? Look more like David, I've sinned, cleanse me, wash me, make me new, or look more like Solomon, which is it's always going to be easier to quit and to say why try than it is to fight. It's always going to be easier when you get knocked down to just stay down. You get knocked down, you're taking a beating, and it's easier to say, you know what? Just stay down. It's always going to be easier to say that. But man of God gets up and fights. Man of God gets up and fights. And which one of us are going to be that man of God? That man of God that when I don't say, let's go even easy, go up to big. Like, I don't want to make it all big things. Easy things. I can't fast. I, I, fasting is too hard. Easy things to say is God doesn't care about fasting. Man of God says, oh, God cares about fasting. I'm weak. God help me to fast. It's not my fault that I lose my temper. Everyone around me is an idiot. And it's easy to say everyone around you is an idiot. Maybe you're the idiot. And maybe you need to look in the mirror and say, everyone is not an idiot. I have a problem with my temper. Easy thing to say, no, it's all their fault. Why should I? That's an easy thing to say. Truth of the matter is, hardest thing to do is admit that we are failed. Again, especially for guys, but not just guys, but especially guys. This is why guys... This is why guys traditionally struggle with spirituality because it's all about failure and we don't like to fail. We like to go to a church and that church says, do these three things and you will be like an MVP in church. Like we're always trying to get the MVP award somewhere. So we want a list and say, do this, but that's not spirituality. That's not relationship with God. Relationship with God is you will fail. But when you fail, it's how you respond that makes you a champ. Practical. I'm gonna go three very practical things. I'm gonna run through these kind of quick practical things that we can and must do if we want to be David's, not Solomon's. Number one, 
I must examine myself regularly. I must examine myself regularly. David spent way too much time without examining himself. Solomon never examined himself. And when we don't examine ourselves, it's just like if you don't go to the doctor for the checkup, you don't know what's going on inside there. You've been 10 years since you went to the dentist for a checkup. Expect stuff in there that you don't realize is there. When was the last time you examined your soul? Like, forgive me. We spend more time caring about the state of our teeth than we care about caring the state of our hearts. We spend more time preparing and examining our hair in the morning than we spend examining our souls. Number one practice for spiritual maturity is this. Examine myself regularly. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's about as blunt and straightforward as you can possibly be. If you say, I don't need to examine myself, then you are a liar is what it's saying, and you are deceiving yourself. Here's what I want you to do with every one of these action items. I'm asking you a question to make it more clear. And the question I have, I wrote it on your handout, is what are you pretending isn't a problem? And I don't think that you need to think very hard about that one. What am I pretending today? What do I know is a problem, but I'm pretending is not a problem? We need to be honest. And you know what else? You know what else? We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with God's messenger. Because the truth is, I believe this. The same way God loved David so much that he sent him Nathan, God loves each and every single one of us so much, he will send us a Nathan. And that Nathan could be up here from the stage yelling at you right now. That Nathan could be your mom calling you after, after you leave here and asking. And that uh, could be the voice of God. Could be an email. It could be a child. If you're a parent, you never heard the voice of God from your children, then you're not listening. Nathan could come from anywhere. And when Nathan comes, the messenger comes, don't be defensive. Put down your defensiveness. Nathan is not coming to attack you. Nathan is coming to help you. And when he comes at you, when he says, you have sinned, don't be defensive. and Accept it. It's coming from God. Take it seriously. Examine myself regularly. Number two, confess my sins, both to God and man. Confess my sins, both to God and man. The principle of confession is written about in the scriptures at length. First John chapter 1, verse 9. So the verse before was the one we just read. And he says he has no sin, deceives himself. Next verse. Not just saying, examine yourself if you're a sinner, but do something about it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he forgives. So God never just says, examine, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. He's saying, you're bad, come help me, let, let me make you good. Because that's what I specialize in. But we have to confess our sins. Next verse, James 5, 16. Again, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Here's my question to you. And it's a simple question, and don't read more into it than it's trying to say. When was the last time you confessed? When was the last time you confessed? And I know you look at that and say, well, you know, I could, don't, 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 it's not the federal, it's not the tax laws. Don't they treat it like the IRS. They're trying to make loopholes. When was the last time you confessed? And you say, well, I don't believe in confession to a priest. I believe in confession to God. Okay, let's start with confession to God. When was the last time you confessed to God? 
That's an easy thing to say when we don't want to confess to a priest. We believe here, for those who are joining us, we believe in the sacrament of confession. And I understand many people here, not Orthodox, you may not believe in it. That's totally fine. Like, that's 100% fine, and I, and I don't blame you. And I, you probably had a bad experience, or someone told you something, or like, priest bit you. Like, I don't know what happened. Like, I totally understand. I get that. Confession is hard. I totally get that. I'm not trying to pressure anybody. But I'm saying the majority of the people, our problem is not that we don't believe in confession, is that we don't want to do it. And there's a complete difference between someone saying, I'm not comfortable with this idea. I don't get it yet. Explain it to me. That's different than one saying, I believe in it, and I just don't want to do it. And then because we don't want to do it, we say we don't believe in it. But that's nonsense. When was the last time you confessed to God, number one? The Bible said, I just showed you two verses talking about confession. I can bring you many more. When was the last time you confessed? When was the last time you confessed, not just to God, but what we believe, again, I'm okay if you don't believe this, but what we believe is that the means by which God wants to work his healing and his forgiveness is through the sacrament of confession. When was the last time you did that? I'll say something, don't no one be offended. Don't be offended. The people who say they don't confess, one of two things. I believe what, I'm gonna give you two examples of people who say that, and I believe this will probably hit 95% of the people in this room. Number one, they never tried it. Or number two, they're hiding something. There's something they don't wanna confess. And neither of those is a good reason. Number one, they never tried it. You never tried it? Come on in. Give it a try. I'm open for confessions every Saturday night, no appointment needed. But number two, you've tried it, but you're just hiding something. You're hiding from something from yourself, from God, whatever it may be. And my advice to you is confess. Number three. There's the good one. We always end on the good note. Examine was tough. Confess is tough. Rely on God's grace one day at a time. Very important. I'm going to talk about God's grace now. I'm going to finish with God's grace. God's grace. I don't want to say it doesn't apply because that sounds too harsh. But I'm saying don't do number three. Three, prerequisite for three is one and two. That's what I want to say. One and two are prerequisite for three. So very easy to say, whew, that was tough at one and two, but I'm just going to take number three. Like I choose door three, okay? I'm going to go with God's grace. I don't want to examine. I don't want to confess. I'm going to go with God's grace. Three is based on one and two. So you one and two, then you listen to three. If you ignored one and two, turn your ears off for number three. Rely on God's grace one day at a time. Speaking about confession, I, earlier this week, had a chance for my confession on whatever, Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever day it was. And every time I confess, it is almost, it's comical because the script is as follows. I go in and I pour my heart out. It takes two minutes for me. Like my confession's like five minutes. Like I struggle to get to five minutes of my confession because I just go and I say boom, 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 boom. And that, I believe that's the way confession should be. I don't believe confession should be a lot of dialogue. Like dialogue is fine, but sit, keep it away from confession. Confession is I have sinned. And that's the way I go. And I say boom, 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 boom. And then my priest, my father of confession, gives me a few words. It's very nice. And then I respond with the same question every time. Okay. What should I do about it? Like, but I always ask in a different way. Basically, what I'm trying to get to is, okay, what action item should I take after this? What can I do to solve this? Because I want the checklist. I want to be able to say, I have this problem, and I have fallen into this. I'm going to do A, B, C, and D, and never fall in it again. And it's almost funny, because if I tell you the number of times my father of confession tells me the same thing, it's Father Anthony, 
very nice and he's very patient with me. I'm kind of difficult. He's very patient with me. He says, we have to be patient and God's grace. I'm like, okay, God's grace is a fantastic idea. I'm going to do A, B, C, and D and then have all of God's grace. And he's like, okay, that's nice. But really you, you can't like manipulate God's grace. Like God gives grace at certain times. And sometimes he gives more grace and you experience victory. And sometimes he gives less grace and you experience defeat. But don't worry. Like God loves you the same either way. And his grace will bring you to where you need to be in the end and just trust that you do your part. He's going to take care of his part. Like, okay, that's a great idea. I think he'll do his part best if I do A, B, C, and D. <laughs> and it's funny because we have the same discussion every time. And in the end, I always want to walk away with a list of action items. And I always walk away with trust and rely on God's grace. <laughs> but that's the answer. Now, with that said, some of you need some action items. <laughs> some of you are too much grace, all right? And some of you are very, love grace very, very, very much. And some of you need action items. Come talk to me. I'll give you action items. <laughs> but some of us are too action items. And we need just to know, you know what? God's grace will see us through. And God's grace is always going to be there. And is when God reveals a sin to us, like I said, examine yourself. And you say, oh no, it's too wicked. It's too bad. Realize that God's grace is coming to wash it and to heal it. But I can't heal something that you don't expose. But God's grace is not coming to condemn us coming to wash us and cleanse us. Look at this verse right here, Romans 3, 23. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. That's one and two. But being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that's number three. So here's my question to you that you ask yourself. What are you trying to do that only God can do? I have failed. I'm never going to fail this again. Okay, that's great. But you can't control that. Sin is bigger than you. You can't go into it and attack it and say, I'm going to knock down sin, and I'm never going to sin again. Without God's grace, none of us have a chance. That's why I love this verse. Isaiah 119, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Some people don't like God's grace. Some people think, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we talk too much about grace, then you know what? People are just going to do all kinds of bad sins. Don't tell people about grace because if you tell them about grace, they're going to have a free license to sin. Don't tell them that there's forgiveness. Like, don't stress it too much. Stress like judgment. Don't stress too much on the grace thing. Well, you know what? Here's my response to that. First of all, if your goal is to pull a fast one on me or pull a fast one on yourself, you have the wrong goal. Because yes, you can do all the wicked things. Say, yeah, God's grace, God's grace. You can fool yourself, but you cannot fool God. So that's not the goal. But number two, I want to tell you even more importantly, God's grace doesn't give me license to sin. God's grace gives me power and encouragement that I can stop sin. So I see it the opposite way. Some people say, if too much grace, then people won't fight. I say it's the opposite. Grace tells me that someone is helping me and that this enemy in front of me, that when I have grace, you know what? I'm stronger than I realize. I'm not strong enough where I can take him down myself, but I have someone on my side. And grace encourages me and grace motivates me to say, hey, you know what? God is working with you. You are not fighting on your own. The grace of God is working with you. And you will slip, grace will pick you up and you'll go back and you'll slip and grace will pick you up. And every time you get yourself dirty, grace will wash you off and make you whiter than snow. If there's no grace, then there's no point in trying. But if there's grace, we wake up in the morning and we say, today I will fight. I will be David. I will repent. I will examine. I will confess. I will trust in God's grace. Then I'll get up in the morning and do the exact same thing. Last verse. Leave you all with this. Action item for everybody. 
says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Lamentations 340. That's a good one for you to maybe hold on to this week. Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. That's my hope and my prayer for every single person here today. Let's stand up together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, without your grace, we can't even stand in front of you. But by your grace, Lord, by your grace, we come to you with our humble requests. Come to you not as strong people, but as weak people, but as people who really love you and really want to be healed and really want to do the things that make you happy. Lord, help all of us. Give us to be like the spirit in the heart of David, that even though he failed and failed miserably, Lord, he got back up and he fought. Give us that same fighting spirit, Lord, that we can do the hard things, examining ourselves, taking the step of confessing, and relying on your grace every single day. Pray, Lord, that you give an extra special dose of your grace to those who are in extra need of it today, those who are hurting, those who are feeling like failures, feeling like there's no point in trying. Lord, give them a special dosage of your grace this day. and Let them walk out of here strong and confident, knowing that you are with them, no matter what it is, the failures that we walk through. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.